Ahlan wa sahlan, benvenuti, falce, titambire. Welcome to the podcast series of the UNESCO Chair in Refugee Integration through Languages and the Arts at the University of Glasgow. We bring you sounds about integration, languages, culture, society and identity. Welcome to the podcast for the University of Glasgow that's being done by UNESCO. My name is Olivia Dotti, and I'm also a former and current student of the University of Glasgow. I'm joined in with Mukuka Kasonde from Zambia and also Biz Katrine. Welcome to you both. Could you please introduce yourself? Yes, my name is Mukuka. I'm Zambian. I'm a PhD candidate. I suppose I could say I'm a critical management scholar, and my research um, involves exploring calls to decolonize UK business schools. I am uh, Brice Catrin. I'm French. I have a background uh, as a musician. I was trained as a classical musician, and then I am now an artist, also writer, while doing all sorts of artistic things, and a doctor in music compositions too. Thank you very much. Welcome both. Today we're here to listen to the project about storytelling, which has been done in Zambia. And right now, I'd like both of you to explain about your project that you've been doing in Zambia with the children. It would be good to explain how this project came about. So it came about through conversations between Brice and I when uh, I was talking about how there's limited local reading content in in Zambia. I think partly this also came out of my own research. So even though it's not to do with education at primary level, but then when I went to the UK to do my PhD, in, in a sense, I understood a little bit more about how much of the content that I was exposed to in primary school for reading was UK content. And there was a sense of yearning for me in something that would be a bit more local. And so we began talking about that. And we said, well, um, based on, I suppose, our interests and our skills, what if we did a project that brings out some more local stories from from Zambian children specifically? Yes. And then we considered that the specialists of children literature were uh, children. So rather than finding a adult writers or writing ourselves, since we are both also writing mm-hmm. fictions, we decided to go to said children and write stories with them. So it was a very spontaneous uh, pilot project uh, that we did last summer. So we have mm-hmm. only four stories for now, but it's an ongoing project and hopefully we'll have a bigger collection uh, soon enough. Mm-hmm. And just to uh, add to what Mukukat just said, So English is the national language in Zambia, but also the books that are published in in local languages like Bemba and Nyanja, there are also uh, British stories that are being translated into these languages. So the the lack of local literature is is very impressive. And this literature exists, it's just not published. Since you're talking about language and this this is about storytelling and sharing language as well, I'd like to know exactly what languages are you using to uh, tell the stories with the children? So the short answer, I suppose, when it comes to the language is that it's um, English, 
because that's the common language amongst all the people who were involved in the project. What and also place the that you choose official language of instruction and at the level of, of the children who are working with. So of course it's in English, but uh, since most of the children speak two, three languages, whenever possible, we added a bit of uh, Bemba here and Yanja there. So in the text, there are a few words from uh, local languages. Local languages, yeah. teacher scientist explorer. Her assistant was a white man named Franklin Albert. They were both from Indonesia, a country of great cultural variety and equality. The different provinces of Indonesia were friendship land, Neverland, and Adventureland. Indonesia's neighboring countries were Botswana, the UK, the USA, Belgium, Mozambique, Congo, France, Nigeria, Egypt, Brazil, Morocco, South Africa and I think one of the things that we were aiming for was that the project would be as collaborative as possible. So everybody in the classroom at that time would be involved. Not only did we want to have maybe a story as a product, but we also wanted the process to be one that allows maybe cross creativity between the students and also with ourselves, though mainly we were working as facilitators. It's a collaborative project and it's a very important aspect of, of it. So it means that we have to find a way to get all the ideas of all the different children to fit together. There's a bit of negotiation, not much because the children are mostly accepting all the ideas that are appearing. When there are contradictions like we have in the, in the last story, the fourth one, uh, we we wrote down the different versions, explaining that uh, we called the children the the twelve how many are there twelve wise children, mm -hmm. and they have it's oral tradition, so they have different versions of the same story, which is perfectly normal. So we write the different the different versions. So we always find ways to to put into light the the value of these different opinions and consider them as a quality rather than an obstruction. We didn't want also to arrive in the in the classrooms with an agenda, like uh, being, uh, we're going to talk about this, or we're going to mm. talk about that. So what happened is that they talked about things that were totally unexpected for us, yes. which was really great. Mm -hmm. The only thing that I ended up asking, because I thought it was nice and important, was to have at least one Zambian element to the story. Mm. So either a part of the story should happen in Zambia, or one of the characters at least should be Zambian. So each story has a Zambian element because the very first classroom we entered, they were age six to nine. They had only uh, American and uh, British heroes uh, doing American and British things. So we asked them to bring these guys to, to Zambia and see what happens to them. Yeah. Pop culture uh, heroes. Yes. Indeed, that was very interesting. And I think when we went into the project, we went in with a curiosity and an openness. So our question was, what do Zambian children in this area and within this age, what do they want to talk about? What do they want within stories? Um, and so indeed, it was unexpected how much, at least definitely for me, how much pop culture there was within these stories. Yeah, I think for me also in, in my post-colonial interest, it just sort of solidified this this maybe when you come from the theory to the practice where you have this theory of distinctness in culture, maybe, 
And so for me, it just it just blurred this image, I suppose, of what Zambian culture is for, for young people. And so that was something that was quite unexpected. Right. It also demonstrated uh, how like how wide their culture is, because they know, of course, the whole Global North culture, stuff that I, I was not aware of, but I'm not very good at pop culture in general, I, I confess. But also how aware they are of local uh, politics issues. Mm -hmm. uh, so they were they, there was constantly this going back and forth yeah. between between like the international uh, uh, imperialist Global North culture and, and very local mm -hmm. matters that they, they master really well, to, mm -hmm. to be honest. Yeah. When the children are reading uh, books, are these the books that are provided by you or is it the school that provides the, the books? And is it easy for the children to, to have access to the books to read to uh, in those areas where you are working with them? So for our projects, we didn't have any reading material set. So what we did is we maybe before I finish answering this, I might just touch on the idea of access. This was a pilot project because of course, no one's just going to let you have access to their school children, rightly so, you know, there should be some sort of process before you get access to it. So we were lucky in that we do have contacts with the heads of the schools that we went into. And so we, we presented the project to them and they accepted to allow us to do the pilot with them. So that's how we got access to these particular schools. So what we did then is that we also spoke to the teachers beforehand just to explain to them what we're going to do, what the aim of the of the project is, how we're going to conduct it. And so when we walked into the classroom, we had mixed children in terms of age and gender. And um, we just basically said, okay, we're going to write a story, all of us together. How do you want us to begin the story? And so it's very much um, a project that comes, or it's very much a process that comes from receiving what the children have, and then also trying to encourage them to work with one another in terms of developing the ideas. And so our roles mainly are just sort of to be writing down what, the, what, what they're saying, and in a sense to be guiding the the story but not in a way where we're leading we're sort of we're working off of their ideas so there was no reading before yeah, because in... the reading list is already an agenda like if you mm. choose books that they should read beforehand you're already hinting then, a lot yeah so it's we tried and and i think that's something that worked really well to very much just have the children leading the story and then we just acting as um, as sort of writers and putting ideas together. At some point, we had whiteboards and we had like, you know, 10, 15 bullet points and then would rub, take a picture, erase that, and then write more bullet points just to see how the story sort of flowed. There once was a family of three, which was a mom, dad, and a girl whose name was Malaika. One day, they went camping, so they were preparing for camping. They started off at 9.40. It was a long way to the campsite. This camp was next to a nice four called Mosi Otunia Falls. So they arrived at 18.20. They set their tents and as they were sleeping, they heard a roar. Malaika's parents came out of the tent and saw a lion. And the lion ate him. 
After the lion ate them, the lion heard a child cry and entered the tent and found a baby girl. Luckily for Malika, she was five, so she knew some things, and she was old enough to know that her parents are dead. So she. So the lion took her by the leg and took her to the lion's den, and the lion left her alone. So she ran as fast as she could and found a village in the forest, and she was raised there on. I just want to go back uh, with you, Mokupe. Mm -hmm. You mentioned something to do with post-colonial lens. When yeah. the children are reading their books, it's from one of the, the stories that I've listened that you guys have done with the children talks about the Victoria Falls. Yes. Um, how much aware are the children? How much are they aware about the, the Victoria Falls? And uh, I'm looking at the post-colonial lens whereby David Livingstone's story mm -hmm. is more like very familiar in the, in the Zambian education. Do you change to retell that story when you think about the post-colonial lens? Or do you tell like a natural story of what is happening today Mm -hmm. Because I I believe the story was not taught correctly, which in Zambia it was known that David Livingstone was the founder of the Victoria Falls, but there were indigenous people before David Livingstone arrived to that area. So how are the children learning about that? Indeed, um, that's a great question because I think from a post-colonial scholar perspective, there were lots of things that were coming out. Uh, during the conversations that sort of made me go, oh, no. But then I think what I had to remember was that I wasn't there as a post-colonial scholar. That's something that is there in my mind and something um, that, I'm, that I'm quite regularly thinking about. But having said that, we did have a discussion about um, Victoria Falls and Mosiotunya and which words to use and which language to use in reference to that. I think for me, even some of the gendered aspects of what was coming out in the conversations was something that made me pause and reflect, especially on, on our roles as facilitators of these workshops. And I think what, what we did is that, um, of course, we couldn't not make certain comments. So we did, like I said, have a discussion on Victoria Falls and Mosiotunya, and at one point, we were discussing the race of some of the characters. So, you know, we're discussing should this character be black and female or should they be white and um, and male? And what, what are some of the characteristics? I think at some point, one of the students uh, said or were discussing the idea that, you know, um, white people are generally explorers because black people don't. And so we had those we had those conversations, and they You're don't. Putting it mildly, she said something like, "Black people stay at home, and uh, and, and white people are adventurers." Yes, and adventurers. Like, oh. Yes. So, <laughs> so from a post-colonial perspective, it was quite difficult to to sort of have these encounters. Of course, they don't make it into the book because that's not the purpose of the of the book. But what we did do, which I think was really was really meaningful for me, and hopefully for the students is that after we were done with the workshops, you know, during lunch, we did have conversations about these things. And we tried to, um, we tried to have the conversations in a way that opened up their minds to, to other ways of thinking about things. So like you said, you know, it's Victoria Falls, but then why do we not call it Mosotunya? What does Mosotunya mean? So um, maybe to cut a long answer short, I think, what it sort of suggested to us is that 
there's a lot of re-education that has to happen even at primary level because from from these conversations you can sort of see how the I suppose colonial ideas you know the the gendered ideas are already already set in there and I think without some sort of strong intervention they kind of continue you know through the education system but we're so, we're able to challenge that very playfully I mean mm -hmm. when we're starting a recession we would like just ask what is the story mm -hmm. okay we need characters who are the characters and it was really easy to to say like oh should we not have a like a, a, a young girl as a hero, for instance, mm. and they'd be like, oh, yeah, good That's idea, let's do that. Mm -hmm. And then we had young girls Great. as heroes. Yeah. So when I when I was saying we didn't have an agenda, okay, it's true, but we didn't want to end up with only a male. We didn't want to end up with Captain America in each story. So we did push for a few things like Zombian, uh, Zombian aspect, uh, young girls as heroes, mm -hmm. these kind of things. And there was uh, there's an interesting uh, conversation about uh, racial biases in the last story. A lot of questions about race have been uh, have been mentioned in the story. Mm -hmm. Like uh, uh, the heroes all come from different. Well, the the main hero is a black woman scientist, and her mm -hmm. assistant is a white man. And this, we didn't come up with it, no, I think. They, they, no. they had the idea. Yes. It's already here. There's a strong uh, difference with the usual biases. And there are all these, like, yeah, racial discussions. With mm -hmm. There's even this mysterious white tribe near Museotunia. Like, mm -hmm. Where are they from? You know, a tribe mm -hmm. of white men in, well, near Museotunia. It's very mm -hmm. mysterious. Just after he had committed this crime, Franklin got beaten by a snake. Tamiko explains to us that it attacked him because of Malaika's bracelet. If anyone ever tried to harm Malaika, the bracelet would tell all the animals, and the animals would charge at the person, in this case, Franklin Albert. In fact, thanks to her bracelet, the animal friends would also come to rescue her. And indeed, as she was falling from a fragile tree branch, popping out of the falls, where Franklin thought he had left her dead, the eagle friend casually picked her up and saved her. Now, there are different opinions regarding the type of snake that beat Franklin and its motivations. Let us hear the wise children once again. I think from one of your... One of the, the, the stories that you've already done, I picked up, I think, one of the boy was talking about this scientist being greedy, discovered the mineral resources, the stones. Uh, these stones were precious. Uh, it made me laugh. Uh, and I was just like, okay, I think, like you said, there's a lot of re-education also being done through the stories you guys are sharing with the, the children. But I was laughing because uh, how the boy said it, like, one of the scientists became very greedy and uh, found the precious stones and was like stealing those precious stones. And I was like, that's amazing. I think it's, it's raising awareness that actually within Africa, we've got precious stones and the children are aware of that. And this is something I think going forward that the education carries on. So when you, you hear things like that, or when you come up with the scientists being greedy, stealing the stones, how would you re reverse it and make it more understanding to the children for them to understand 
why the scientists will steal the stones? Would you tell them because there's no stones in Europe or they don't have the precious stones, Africa's got the precious stones. How would you re-educate that to, for them to appreciate how much Africa has got as well mm -hmm. as a continent? I think I would say that this is, I think there's another thing which comes back, like the idea of curiosity of what are children thinking about? Because I think most of the time we as adults, we don't really ask them what they're thinking and we don't allow them to expand their ideas. And so there's, I, I shouldn't even say this because why would I think otherwise? But there's a remarkable level of awareness that children have. Um, and I think the reason why we don't realize it might be because of the way that we have conversations, because everything that's coming out in the stories, it it wasn't from the two of us. It it was very much from them. So every single, it was put together by Breeze, but every single idea that comes out is coming from them. And so from these ideas and the conversations in between the sessions and the conversations after the sessions with them, for me, it, it demonstrates an awareness that I assumed wasn't there, and that's shameful on my part. We have a few answers in this last story again, because indeed the scientists are, are greedy and mm -hmm. trying to work for their own benefit. And at some point, the children said, okay, we have to, to solve that and make mm -hmm. them change their behavior. Uh, they have to become good people. So we asked them, uh, how do they become good people? Uh, the children mm -hmm. first said, well, we tell them to stop being bad. Okay, and then and then we went into details of mm. how to do that. And there's there's this recipe at the end of the book, and and these greedy scientists they understand that it's better to work for the common and local mm. uh, good than for their own interests. Mm. So it's I think the yeah the the children are very aware of these things. So what is more puzzling for them, I guess, is why do we not do that all the time? Right, mm. so stop being bad. Stop being bad. Stop it. Yeah. Yeah, no, I think our aim was not to teach them, if that makes any sense. We we didn't go in normal classroom style where we're like, okay, if you have this, here's a solution for you. I think we very much went in having them come forward. So like Bree said, they 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 would present solutions to some of the problems that they've observed uh within uh within society. I think a good example is the question about the president. So during one of the stories, I think this is the president Katy Perry yes. story. Same name, different person. Same name, different person, yes. One of the pupils stood up and said, well, I have a question for the president because it was meant to be a press conference in the story. And he says, well, my question is, Mr. President, will you Mrs. rule? President. Mrs. President, my bad. Uh, Miss President, will you rule um, on popularity or principle? Exact words. And I have to admit, I was struck and I didn't have an answer. And so we cleverly, but also cowardly, sort of pushed the class and said, okay, class, what do you think? If you were the president, would you rule on popularity or principle? And then the conversation sort of went with them giving us responses. That was another very interesting uh, situation that just demonstrated how much yeah, knowledge they have. Uh, um, he was seven year old, yes. Yes. And and he okay. was really shocked that the president would, would rule on popularity. Yes. It was <laughs> it was unacceptable, <laughs> rightly unacceptable yes, for unacceptable him. Unacceptable for him. That's very interesting to hear that. After the snake eats Franklin, 
Malaika took them back to the area where they were all living and then she made the remedies drop moisture made of mango leaves, caterpillar, the bits of monkey droppings and the venom of a snake. She put the moisturizer onto the wound and it, it healed in three days. After this rather extreme jealous crisis, Franklin came back to his senses. He and Laura lived amongst the Mositekatunia while still figuring out ways to repair their helicopter. But in Lula's own words, the tribe had a secret. They were hiding something from the entire forest, and no one knew anything about the minerals. The scientists Adora and Franklin figured out about the minerals and gemstones, and they became greedy. They slightly convinced Malaika to show them where to find the minerals and gemstones. After she had showed them the place, they tried to kill her again. This time, she was saved by the monkey. Meanwhile, the tribe had heard on the radio that Alora and Franklin were actually criminals on the run. They guessed where to find them, and they arrested them. Now that they had a mission, they needed to make them better people, who might eventually open an ethical jewelry business to help the tribe and develop new technologies for schools. But the first step of redemption was good food, when you're doing the workshops with the children, how many workshops do you usually do with them? Uh, is it only literature or these other workshops maybe using us? Uh, so for these workshops, uh, we had uh, the first two groups, we had them for hardly more than an hour and uh, two other groups for two hours. But in this very short time, we managed to write the stories and have them uh, illustrate them. Because we also, it's going really fast because I take the notes, so you take the notes yeah, too. We, we both take the notes, the notes on the on the board. So mm -hmm. it goes really, really fast. When the board is full, we take a picture, we erase. Mm -hmm. So the, the process is very quick. And of course, after 30, 45 minutes, we are exhausted. The kids are right. So to pretend that they should take a break, we're like, okay, now you should maybe draw something. Yes. And uh, they draw something for 15, 20 minutes. Mm -hmm. We we recover. And at the end, they have all these great illustrations mm -hmm. that go with uh, that go with the story. Mm -hmm. This happened quite spontaneously, I think, because we weren't really, it being a pilot, we've, we've never done this before. We had a general framework based on the work that has been done in Switzerland. Here in Switzerland, yeah. but with older pupils. Yes, with older pupils. So we had a general idea of how we we're going to do it, but we, we didn't really know what was going to happen when we were on the ground. And we were also, again, conscious of the fact that we were working with younger children and giving them sort of a break, even though, as Bree said, we were the ones who needed the break. And we didn't know what we were going to incorporate, what we were not going to incorporate. And so I think the, I don't know how the idea to draw came up but it just came up and it worked really well because I think one thing that we were that we saw through the workshops was that children sometimes lack confidence in speaking and also in presenting ideas because they feel the ideas might not be so welcome and so for some who were a bit more shy that we tried to bring to you know to bring them into the conversation they found drawing to be helpful and so I really can't remember how it happened. It was one of those spontaneous things, but then it worked so well that we incorporated drawing into, into I think, two more of the workshops. You came up with the idea and I thought you were a genius. Did I, did I really? <laughs> yes. <laughs> I will claim that, yes. I came up with the idea. 
My earliest memory of my parents is being killed by humans called Precious and Elias. My parents were warming themselves up on a rock by the water when these filthy humans spotted them and hit them with stones. They agonized for days in excruciating pain. I could not help them. I just stared at them dying slowly. Their breathing became faster and faster, louder and louder, and stopping suddenly. They died at the exact same second. They had always done everything together, even that. Since then, I've always hated humans, except Malaika and the Tekatsunya tribe, who, re who respect me. Malaika fed me when I was an orphan. I gave her the snake bracelet, meaning that when anyone or any human or animal hurts her, I will punish the culprit with a deadly bite. I know Malaika will heal them because she is so good. I think my biting and her healing teach them a valuable lesson. That's just about confidence because mm. um, usually I think uh, looking at cultural norms, the children are basically taught to sometimes wait for the grown-up to speak yeah. before they can speak. Mm -hmm. It could be a whole article because mm -hmm. uh, we had small groups and there were between 12 and 15 pupils. Mm -hmm. These kind of groups are right because even if someone doesn't speak, you manage after a while to mm -hmm. get them to say something and, mm -hmm. and to participate and to be smart like all the other kids. So we could tell at the end that everyone had ideas. It was about sharing them. Mm -hmm. We also saw a difference, if I may say, between the two schools because in in the second school, the pupils were coming from like, uh, let's say... Uh, Slightly better like, socioeconomic background. Yeah. yeah. So they were a lot more confident mm -hmm. uh, speaking and uh, sharing their ideas. I remember in the second school, the, the girls were very confident, but mm. again, because of this different social background, maybe in uh, Nikos, in, in uh, Lusaka, mm -hmm. in Lusaka, how was it, the gender difference, do you remember? I think the girls were a bit shyer at the beginning, but then it, it was just a question of warming up and, yeah. and putting them at ease, because I think in the end, like everyone was... Yeah, we did manage to get the children to speak. I think one of the ways uh, we did think about that when we we're trying to develop the project, because we're thinking, you know, if you go into a classroom with two strangers and then the strangers say to you, talk, you know, how would children feel about that? That might be very, you know, uncomfortable. So what we had requested was that the teachers should be there in the room with us just to uh, signal, you know, that these are, these are adults, but then that this familiar face who they can sort of refer to in case in case they need that you know extra comfort, and so that worked really well because I think at one point one of the teachers actually encouraged the children to sing. At one point in the workshops, we were we were singing, so we would never have done that because well, I definitely am not a singer, so I would never have done that. But because there was this 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 presence um, of somebody who's familiar and who knows them, I think then that helped even some of the ones who were a bit uh, shyer to to come out a bit more because there was that there was that safety well and also we used the uh, famous uh, yes and method so nothing is wrong whatever mm -hmm. they say it's, it's written it's, on the board it's on the board yeah and i think we found 
solutions to incorporate everything in 99% mm -hmm. of the cases. The cases, yeah. I cannot remember of a case that probably must have been one or two where mm -hmm. it, we didn't know what to do with this material, but mm -hmm. mostly it, it all fits, you know, it's like, yeah. it's like making our own puzzle. It's, mm -hmm. I, I love working like this, like, like this for my own yeah. work, having many different parts and thinking, okay, how, how I put them together. So I just work the way I usually work with their ideas. And I think maybe this is one of the things which was a setback in, in terms of the time that we had, because though we did get each child to say something, sometimes it involved me going and saying, you can whisper into my ear, and then they would whisper into my ear, and I would sort of say it out louder, because they, some, of, some of the children just aren't confident speaking out loud in class. But then I could tell towards the end of the sessions that they were a bit more comfortable, but it was unfortunate because that was indeed the end of the session. So ideally maybe we would be having these workshops over the period of a of a month or maybe a whole term so you know three months i don't know because you're you... thinking of the of lusaka and we had only one hour with them mm -hmm. yes it's... so there was already a big difference between the one hour and the two and the, hour, and the two hour ones yes one thing that we did take away is that more time is is needed because you need to build that confidence you need to have children even get comfortable with this way of working because like you had said, Olivia, normally when you're in a classroom, you know, you go, you sit, you're quiet. Yeah. The teacher tells you things, you listen, you write, and then that's it. But our workshop is completely different. The two-hour version was a, a very good formula. Mm -hmm. They were at ease after an hour, even mm -hmm. less. Yes. So I think writing a full story in two hours is, we might say, success. The technology they developed for schools can be something like projector to like project water. The learners are learning so that it can save teachers a lot of work, even security cameras around the school to avoid thieves. The technology helps develop the schools in many ways like with reading and you don't need to write in books. You can just say what you want and it will type the words into the computer. Grace, I'm hearing you picking up something from your, you're talking, you've mentioned Lusaka about three times, I think. I know it's uh, the capital city Lusaka, so have you guys done any workshop with the, the schools within Osaka and, and, and how many have you done outside? Yeah. I'm aware that it's, it's hard to support children because of lack of resources in the rural areas. How do you compare the two between Osaka and working outside Osaka, which is the rural areas, reaching out those places which are really difficult to reach? Again, because of, of access, we had some time constraints. We were only there for a month. So in order for us to meet the school um, heads, you know, get their approval, meet the teachers, and then have the workshops, we could only do two schools. It's a, it's a private school, and they they're in two sites, so one in Lusaka, one in, in Indola. We do hope that we can develop the project in such a way that it's, it's rolled out even in in rural areas, so more schools, of course, more pupils, um, and more of a geography. But at this particular point, this pilot, we just did one school in Lusaka and one school in Dola. In a way, I think it might be better if we have some sort of track record to then show, to say, you know, this is what can be done. I think I, I would understand any school's um, 
hesitance to let us into a classroom with no track record whatsoever, you know, in, in a sense. I mean, we really appreciate the schools that trusted us and allowed us into the classroom. But yes, we do understand that it's a bit difficult. It's, a bit, it's, it's, it's different between public schools, or shall I say, between government schools uh, and private schools. Uh, and also, I think you touched on something really interesting, um, Olivia, in terms of resources, because we did think about that. And we tried to make the workshops, I suppose, as simple as possible in terms of resources. So all we need really is um, a blackboard or whiteboard. And then we had the internet connection, even though it's not necessary, and uh, the, the pupils. But then because indeed the, the aim is to develop a method that can be used widely. I know it's, uh, I think it's, it's, it's a place that I'm, I've spun in Zambia, I've done my education in Zambia, mm. and I know what we had in class and what, what we didn't have. So my mind is going back to also how my teachers had to struggle to sometimes mm. just give us something to use to learn or keep us out in the fields a lot. But what you guys are doing is also bringing the literature into the classes at, at a very young age with stories uh, telling as well. But I'd like to know, like, where do you go from here? Are you going to cover up more schools within Lusaka or are you going to branch out to very difficult rural areas where children are born, basically with no resources or maybe cannot even speak English? Our dream now is, of course, to reach more schools in as uh, many different uh, provinces as possible. Mm -hmm. As for uh, pupils who don't speak English, I'm not very helpful, except if we go to Congo and do it in French. But uh, but uh, yeah, I still don't speak Ninja or Bemba. It will happen at some point. With Zambia, what I'm aware of is uh, previously everything was done in English, but I think right now they're introducing back the vernacular languages back into the schools. But before from where I come from, we were not allowed to use any other language apart from English. Mm -hmm. But I understand now the, the, the languages are being thrown back into the schools, which is a, an amazing opportunity because I think I'm also a bit lost with my Zambian uh, Bemba language. I'm, it's quicker for me to say Mulishani, which mm -hmm. means, how are you? <laughs> so that's a Bemba, and then I think we can understand that very well. Mm. No, I definitely understand it very well, especially what you're saying, um, Olivia, about losing your language because you're sort of forced into one other language and and so it's a great thing that they've done um in terms of incorporating local languages back into into the curriculum and i think this is where not to speak too highly of this project but this is where projects such as this one i think can become quite valuable because if you are doing a workshop like this um in a local language what comes out then is a local language book and so in a sense that the 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 possibilities are, are quite wide and speaking to where we see this project going. Our conversations with the teachers were really encouraging because they felt that this method of, of story writing is, is a value for the children. And so uh, ideally, I think if we could roll out this method a bit more widely, then maybe that becomes... Um, a source in which to gather stories that children have and then to build some of these texts that then they use. So uh, if you were to ask me what my, you know, my dream is for a project like this is that it could be 
developed in such a way that it can be replicated in different schools, different settings, different languages, um, and that we begin to build this, you know, rich resource, this rich curriculum um, that I think we really need, especially if we're going to be using local languages in schools. That sounds great. And also just what is your big impact on what you want to see from this project um, as you go along with it? The big impact. Back to what we were saying at the beginning is considering that the children are the specialists of of what they want to say, what they mm. want to hear, what yeah. they know, mm -hmm. uh, what they want to see happening. And that if we want the children to be part of, uh, you know, social uh, dialogue, uh, we need to find ways to hand them the microphone. Mm -hmm. And uh, through fiction, uh, we discover uh, many, many things about what they think, uh, what they believe uh what they think doesn't work mm -hmm. uh and through collaborative uh projects uh we could see also that uh, conversations were happening uh, mm -hmm. on many different levels i can give you just one very practical example uh, in uh, ndola uh, of course you know there are many uh, foreigners yeah. in, the class. in the classroom we had kids from different nationalities and one of the zambian girls said uh, ah yeah in congo uh, you eat humans right and there was a Congolese uh, boy in the classroom who was flabbergasted. He was like, what? No, no, we, we don't eat humans. Mm. And uh, then the girl was like, no, no, but my uncle told me. Uh, if my uncle told me, it's true, right? So <laughs> then uh, we turned it into this discussion appears in the story. And then we find out that uncles, as wise as they are, sometimes say things that are wrong. Mm -hmm. So they go to Congo, they investigate, they find out that it's not real. So all these dialogues, uh, they, they can happen only because, um, well, not only, but let, yeah. let's say the tool of using fiction has a impact, uh, a real life impact on these children who participate. And I have to say, Brice handled the situation very well because when it when it occurred to me, I was a bit, um, or when the when you know the statement was made, I was stuck. I was like, I I don't know how to handle this. Um, <laughs> situation and so Breeze quickly stepped in and he said you know let's let's see where this statement leads the story to go and indeed um the result was was um yeah was amazing both in terms of the story and in terms of how that changed the dialogue between you know children and and the understanding of of the world i think mm -hmm. the biggest shock for this girl is that her uncle had said something wrong that was a epiphany for her that it was mm -hmm. possible I'm pleased to hear that um, Dola actually has got quite a lot of people from different countries living there because this was mostly the Bemba, isn't it, in Fukad, that, that way, northern parts of Zambia is uh, the Bemba tribe. Mm. There's a place in Zambia which has got, uh, I just found out about the, the refugee camp as well. So, which is, because uh, I met uh, someone who came to work in Scotland, uh, mm. who was working at the refugee camp in Zambia. And um, she's English, she was speaking pure Zambian. Mm -hmm. And and uh, she came actually when she was here in Glasgow. She greeted me uh, in my language because I was at uh, somewhere we were talking. So I mentioned I was from Zambia, mm -hmm. and she just came straight to me. She was speaking pure Zambian to me, and I was like, "You have lived in Zambia for many years to speak like that." And then she told me about the refugee camp in Zambia, which I was not aware of. Um, and uh, it was amazing to to hear that actually some refugees that were I mean, here in the early years, they were being taken from this refugee camp 
into Scotland, but I think that now based in Motherwell, there's quite a lot of refugees from Congo that are in Motherwell here in Scotland. And they all speak Zambian language, very fluent Bemba, that they speak even more than me. So that's the northern part of Zambia that uh, it's good that people learn to, you know, adapt in these languages. In a way that's um, that's sort of encouraging, especially like you said, you know, Olivia, given this background where for, for us, language was, or local languages were suppressed. So in a way, it's kind of encouraging to see that um, whether it's an undoing or whatever has happened, that there's still this language that is held within students. Yeah, I think it is something that's quite amazing. I think this project has little sub um, aims, as one of the aims was this collaborating between students and conversations between the pupils and adults. Yeah, in a different way between mm. pupils and adults. But then even just going back to this Congo example, um, my uncle told me, hopefully it kind of creates, I don't know, a way where students can talk to each other about some of these bigger issues, you know, like um, nationality you know, myths and things of that nature and so on. But yeah, I think there's yeah. a lot of potential if I do see Yeah, it's so. great to hear that because I think places like Zambia, I think nationality doesn't matter that much. It's like everybody just lives in peace. Not You don't even ask where you're from or because I think it's a place that doesn't touch much on, on migration. Uh, you know, there's no mentioning of uh, people being deported from different places or people who have stayed in the country. So I think there's that beauty of people being seen as just more like one community and the majority we have in Zambia I think is people from Congo fleeing uh, uh, war from a long time ago and they just seem, they can speak the Zambian language which is Bemba and uh, they speak it very well more than most of the Zambians and things like that so as we are wrapping up I just wanted to get a few ways from each of you how you'd like the listeners to to basically uh, maybe support your project and also through what you guys are doing, there could be a child that will be telling a sad story and you'll be able to identify how you can support that child. So just a few ways from each of you just going forward. Uh, and, and I hope I can meet you in Zambia and and take part in the storytelling. <laughs> well, I mean, the best way to support the project is to read the stories or share them or talk about them and uh, publish them. <laughs> There's the, the publishing uh, situation in Zambia is not too good. Uh, the local publishers don't have really money to publish anything. So so having the story is a thing, but publishing them and distributing them is, let's say, the next major uh, issue we have to work on. I definitely would say just reading the stories, enjoying the stories, taking the stories um, for what they are, which is children expressing themselves. And then, uh, especially like I can say this from my perspective, putting aside some of these ideas that we have um, about children through reading what they've created. That feels like a rather happy end. Aloha and Franklin are now good people. The tribe's secret is safe and Malaika has reunited with her mother. What happens next? Well, the record stopped there, so we can only speculate. Did Alora and Franklin stay with the tribe? Did they go back to Indonesia and open the ethical jerry business? 
did Malaika and her parents and her mother stay with the tribe? The only way to find out now for you to go to Premier Lady Bed Learning Center in Ndola. Meet the 12 wise children and ask them if they know more. I really appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, it's amazing because I think this is a wonderful project. And the stories you're not only sharing stories or listening to the children's share story, you are actually building that education for the children to learn to read as well. And, uh, you know, just really love literature throughout going to their maybe also maybe all the way up to university. You're actually encouraging them to focus going forward with what they do after school. And I hope that the Zambian government will be able to support the project, if not to be other international donors around the world. But it's an important project, and I, I, I'm really happy to hear that you guys are doing this one. So thank you so much. Shukran, grazie, tapaliv, totenda. Thank you for listening to this episode. For the full show notes and for more information about our work, please visit bit.ly forward slash UNESCO underscore Ryla.